the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Today is uh, the Sunday right before Lent. The Lent fast begins tomorrow. And our mother, the church, prepares us for the fast with a reading that reminds us of the ascetic activities that we should be doing during Lent, during the fast. Specifically about prayer, about fasting, about almsgiving. And as we sort of begin or prepare to fast Monday, there are some of us who might have already begun from the perspective of fasting, the perspective of food. Maybe you have like a nice restaurant you want to plan to go to today before the fast starts, or lots of non-fasting food at home that you need to finish, or maybe a nice dinner they have planned for tonight. Our mother, the church, actually prepares us as well in the rites of the church, Reminding us that the fast is starting. You'll see that after I finish the sermon, the chanters, the deacons, they'll be praying. <coughs> All the prayers, the rest of the liturgy will be in the Lenten tune to remind the people that the fast is starting tomorrow. But I want to encourage you to have a plan of action for Lent that goes beyond food. That's one of the ascetic practices that we should be doing during the fast. What am I doing differently, for example, in regards to almsgiving? Am I currently giving my tithe to the church? If I'm not, now is a wonderful time to start. Am I giving my tithes to the church already? Now is the time to set aside more to be distributed to the poor and the needy. How about my life of prayer? What is my plan for my prayer life this Lent? This is actually what I wanted to speak this morning about. I wanted to spend some time talking about the verse that we read this morning that says, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Our Lord Jesus Christ tells us to shut the door of our room before we pray. Shutting the door is a vital part of effective prayer. By shutting the door, our Lord Jesus Christ means shutting out every distraction. A thousand things distract us from prayer, as well as actually during prayer. There's no point in having a place and a time to pray if when we get there we are invaded by distractions that hinder our prayers. So I have to take actions to shut out distractions before I pray. This has to be done before prayer. And this should become a normal part of my prayer life. As I get, go to begin my prayer, I need to shut the door on the way. If I try to pray with an open door, I get nowhere. I have to identify what distractions hinder my prayer life and actively shut them down and shut them out during the place and the time of prayer. The distraction could be noise, could be people, could be business, could be my job, many other activities. Could be actually very legitimate and important things that are, that are vital to us to deal with. But they can't hinder and they can't replace private prayer. Nothing is more important than private prayer. But private prayer will never make or allow you to neglect your responsibilities that are outside the door. When I truly pray behind that shut door, I'm more ready than ever to face and to accomplish the things that await for me once I open the door again. The distractions could be sort of a mind full of worries, burdens, problems, to-do lists, a drifting mind, all of these need to be 
flows down controlled. If we don't empty our minds in prayer, we will not be able to pray correctly. An empty mind doesn't mean like we have nothing going on. But do we actively set distractions aside? So you may say to you, okay, Abuna, I want to do that. I get distracted in prayer. How do I do it? The church gives us one wonderful tool in the Jesus prayer. In the ladder of divine ascent, it says the beginning of prayer is the expulsion of distractions from the very start by a single thought, a short repeated prayer. The middle stage is the concentration on what is being said or thought. Its conclusion is rapture in the Lord. It also says, let the remembrance of Jesus be present with your every breath. Then indeed you will appreciate the value of stillness. So what do I mean practically? I mean, okay, I stand up to pray. And all of a sudden, as I'm praying, I'm getting distracted. The followers of the church teach us, okay, you get distracted. Pray the Jesus prayer, our Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, and remove whatever this distraction is from my heart. Or help me in this thing that is taking my mind away. Usually it's a problem, usually an issue I have, something I'm worried about, peace and anxiety. One of the biggest problems that we have or that presents itself when we start to begin to pray, when I begin, okay, I'm going to pray in a serious way. I start thinking to myself, you know, I don't feel God's presence in my prayer. Of course, God is never absent, right? Scripture tells us this. In the book of Jeremiah it says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord. And in Psalm 139 he says, You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. So of course, when we're talking about a sense of absence in prayer, I'm not talking about a, legit, a real, literal absence. We're talking about a sense of absence that sometimes we have. We stand in front of God and we feel like I'm speaking to the wall. Or I stand anxiously waiting for a reply and I receive nothing. I'm sure all of us have experienced this at some point or another. What should I do? What should I think about a situation like this? First, it's, remember, it's important to remember that prayer is an encounter and relationship. A relationship that is deep, that can't be forced either on us or on God. It's a fact that God can make Himself seem present or leave us with a sense of absence. It's part of the fact that this is a live and a real relationship. If we could somehow sort of mechanically bring him closer to me into an encounter and force him to meet me, just because I have chosen this moment to meet him, then it's not really a relationship. A relationship has to begin and has to be developed in mutual freedom. If you look at the relationship in terms of it being a mutual relationship, you would see that God could complain about us way more than we can complain about him. We complain that he does not make himself present to us for the few minutes that we decide to reserve for him. But what about the 23 and a half hours during which God may be knocking on our door and we answer, I'm busy, I'm sorry. Or we don't answer at all because we do not even hear the knock at the door of our hearts, in our minds, 
in our consciences, in our lives. So there's a situation in which we really have no right to complain about the absence of God. Because we are a great deal more absent than He ever is. But I need to think of my prayers, think of the warmth, the depth, the intensity of my prayer, when it concerns somebody I love or something that matters in my life. Then all of a sudden, wow, I pray like I've never prayed before. My heart is open. My inner self is, you know, is collected. I'm not distracted by anything. When I have something very important in my life, this is how I pray. Does this mean that God matters to you? Not necessarily. Simply it means that the subject matter of your prayer matters to you. When you've made your passionate, deep, intense prayer concerning the person that you love or the situation that worries you, and then you turn into the next item, the next issue that you have, which doesn't matter as much. If suddenly I grow cold, what's changed? Has God grown cold? Has He left? No. It means that my happiness, my intensity, and my prayer is not born of God's presence. It's not born of my faith in Him, my longing for Him, my awareness of Him. It's born of my concern for Him or her or it, but not for God. How can we feel surprised then that this absence of God affects us? It's we who make ourselves absent. It's we who grow cold the moment we are no longer concerned with God. Why? Because it doesn't matter so much. So in order for us to be able to pray, I have to recognize that He's God, that He's King, that we're in His kingdom, and we have to surrender to Him. We have to be at least concerned with His will. That's why in our Father, which we read today, says, Your will be done. Even if we are not yet capable of fulfilling it, if we're not aware of His will, then we treat God like the young rich man. He couldn't follow Christ because he was too rich. And then if I can't follow Christ, how can I meet Him? So often, what we would like to have through prayer, through our deep relationship with God, which we are longing for, <coughs> is simply like another period of happiness. We're not prepared to sell all that we have in order to buy the pearl of great price. And you remember that analogy that our Lord Jesus Christ used about the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. How should I get this pearl of great price? I need to sell everything I have. Give up everything. Count everything to be worthless in comparison to the kingdom of God. Isn't it the same in human relationships? When a man or a woman experiences love for one another, all of a sudden, all the, like you, you, you see a person who's like just got married or just got into a relationship, and they're so focused on the girl that they're with or the guy that they're with, and all of a sudden they don't see anybody in the world. Nobody else matters to them except that person. You have a guy who's in love with a girl, all of a sudden there's no other human beings. It's as if there's no other human beings in the entire world. So when we think about the absence of God, it's worthwhile to ask ourselves whom we should blame for it. We always blame God. We always accuse Him. Either straight to His face 
or in front of people. We accuse him of being absent, of never being there when he's needed, of never answering when he's addressed. And at times, actually, we even do this in sort of a pious way or a way to make ourselves look holy. We say, God is testing my patience. God is in trying to increase my faith, my humility. I find all sorts of ways of turning God's judgment into a new way of praising myself. What I have to start with, if I wish to pray, is the certainty that I am a sinner in need of salvation. That I am cut off from God and I can't live without Him. And that all I can offer God is my desperate longing to be with Him so that God could receive me. Receive me in what condition? In repentance. Receive me in mercy. Receive me with love. And so, from the outset, our prayer is really a humble ascent towards God. A moment when I am turning towards God. All I can do is turn to Him in reverence, in worship, in veneration, in the fear of God in which I'm capable. You probably remember when St. Paul says, or in, in some of the passages of St. Paul, he says, that God tells St. Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness is not the kind of weakness that we show when we sin or when we forget God, but the kind of weakness which means being completely transparent, completely abandoned in God's hands. We usually try to be strong and we try to prevent God from showing His power. Think about how you learned to write when you were a little kid. What did you do? Most of you probably had the pencil in your hand and your mom or your dad took your hand and sort of formed the letters, right? And how were you able to make good letters? How, how were you able to be successful when you were doing this when you were four or five years old? It's because my hand was what? Free. I allowed my mom or my dad to move my hand however it needed to go. Why? Because I don't know how to do it. I don't know the way. When he or she guides me, I can make the letters. Since you didn't even know what your mom or dad meant to do, you left your hand completely free. This is what I mean by the power of God being made perfect in weakness. Think of it sort of in terms of like even like a ship, on the, sa the sails of a ship. How can a sail of a ship carry or catch wind so that you can go a certain place? Because it's sort of like loose and left open to the whims of the wind, right? No one puts in a ship like a big like plywood as a sail. It doesn't work that way. The weakness of the sail is what makes it sensitive to the wind. Same when you think about like the difference between, you know, like in the Middle Ages they had like gauntlets to put on for armor, right? Imagine the difference between a gauntlet and a surgical glove. Gauntlets are strong, stops you from getting hurt. Gloves are frail, surgical gloves are frail, they rip, they break. But those are the ones buying the surgical gloves because of the freedom, because of the weakness. They're able to do intricate things, important things. So one of the things which God continues to try to teach us is to replace the imaginary and the minute amount of strength that we claim to have 
and have this sort of frailty of surrender, of abandonment in the hands of God. Whenever we stand outside of the realm of thinking I am right and in the realm of mercy, then I can meet God in my prayer. I would encourage all of you to be, during this time of Lent, serious about my time with God. Serious about closing the door of my mind and my heart to meet God in the secret place. Being confident, like the passage says, that He sees in secret and that He rewards openly. May God reward openly all of you and glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, 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 uh,